Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Gale Grant and I'm joined today by Dr. John Cookson, who is a consultant in East London and who has a background in pharmacology. He's going to be talking today about uh, the use of antipsychotics in schizophrenia and some of the specifics there. John, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Oliver. How shall we start? Well, uh, we are here to discuss um, the recent special edition of Biological Psychiatry in BJ Psych Advances. And specifically, we're going to be discussing your contributions to this issue, uh, which are largely themed around the use of partial agonists of dopamine receptors in the treatment of psychosis. So I suppose the most logical place to start would be with a very brief overview of the role of dopamine in psychosis. Well, I would start with the concept of uh, receptors. Because uh, pharmacologists regard receptors as their greatest idea. And the concept of receptors arose in about 1906 when Langley was experimenting with the mushroom poison muscarine on tissues of the autonomic nervous system. And he found that there was what appeared to be competitive interactions between the drug muscarine and the drug atropine which seemed to have opposite effects. Uh, and he figured out that the muscarine was having a stimulant effect and the atropine was blocking that effect. And he uh, put forward the idea that they were interacting at something he called the receptor stuff. The concept of the receptor that was then developed in University College London during the 1920s uh, using mathematical approaches and what's called receptor theory in which it's postulated that a drug interacts at a receptor obeying the laws of mass action. And therefore, an antagonist drug blocks a receptor proportionately to its concentration, but following a rectangular hyperbola. So as you increase the dose, you get more and more blockade of the receptor, more and more antagonism of the, in this case, the muscarin. And it, it, it turns out that in the in vitro, at least, the receptor theory works very well at predicting these interactions. And if we turn to the concept of dopamine, this really arose from the actions of antipsychotics. So antipsychotics were discovered in 1952. And it wasn't until the mid-1960s that it was discovered that they all, and there were many of them by then, they all had in common the ability to block dopamine receptors, uh, which were just beginning to be known about. So dopamine was assuming a place as a transmitter within the brain in the 1960s. And antipsychotics all seemed to block dopamine, and it was later found that they block dopamine in the same degree as they have their antipsychotic effects. So that was a crucial piece of what became known as the dopamine hypothesis. So if antipsychotics work by blocking dopamine, it's only one step more to say that maybe the psychosis is caused by an excess of dopamine. So that basically is the dopamine hypothesis of antipsychotic action and of psychosis, be it mania or be it schizophrenia. The next step in development was that the concept of receptors moved from being a sort of theoretical notion to being something very concrete that could be visualized. And so receptors now have their structures known. And indeed, artificial intelligence enables the interaction of a drug with the receptor to be modeled in a computer. 
So the receptors themselves became capable of labeling in the living brain by the PET scanning technique. Uh, and in the 1980s, Farday in, in, in Sweden and others started to measure the degree of occupancy of the dopamine receptors in people who are being treated with antipsychotics. And from that kind of work, we uh, obtained the information that in order to treat an acute episode of schizophrenia or relapse, you need to occupy about 50% of the dopamine 2 type of receptors in the brain. Well, the area of the brain that was actually ob observed is the striatum, but we, we, we assume that the other receptors are blocked to the same extent in all parts of the brain. So you need 80% blockade by the antipsychotic to treat a, a relapse. And it became clear that first episode schizophrenia doesn't need such a big blockade. You can treat first episode schizophrenia with maybe 60% occupancy of the receptors. Uh, and in the other phase of treatment where, where you're maintaining somebody who's relapsed has recovered, you're trying to keep them well, the, the degree of occupancy that's required seems to be less. And in somebody well-maintained for years on a steady dose of antipsychotic, you might be able to get the dose down by slowly reducing it. And you only perhaps may need 50% occupancy to keep them well, but you don't want to go below that or though the dose may seem very small, they'll relapse. So that, that is really the dopamine hypothesis and the concept of receptors and antipsychotics. Now you'll, you'll note from that that the crucial thing is the degree of binding of the antipsychotic to the dopamine receptor. And in, in the test tube, this is known as the dissociation constant, which is the concentration which will block 50% of receptors. And if you know that, you can predict the degree of blockade for any concentration. And you've mentioned my interest in partial agonists. Partial agonists are a very difficult concept, but in the case of antipsychotics, we have drugs that are partial agonists, which means that when they occupy the receptors, they don't just block it, they have a slight stimulating effect on the receptor, which is a very difficult concept to visualize until one knows what the actual structure of a receptor is. And in defining a partial agonist, as well as knowing what the dissociation constant is, which tells you how potent it is, you need to know another number, which is known as the intrinsic activity, which is what degree of stimulation do you get when the, when the drug is bound? You get an ag agonist effect and an antagonist effect. And the intrinsic activity enables you to disentangle those two things. So uh, the most notable partial agonist uh, drug in clinical use that people have probably heard of is uh, aripiprazole. Am I correct? Yes, that is correct. That, that is the first, but not the last. So uh, aripiprazole is a partial agonist of dopamine 2,3 receptors and also 5-HT1A receptors. So its pharmacology is a little bit complex. Um, the things to know about it, its range of doses, and we'll probably come on to that a, a bit later on, how much dose you need to occupy the receptors. But you also need to know that it's got a very long half-life, so it doesn't reach steady state until you've been on a steady dose for up to three weeks. And with, regarding the intrinsic activity, we think that roughly speaking, it's 25% agonistic when it binds to the receptors. So that is the, the first and the most widely used of the partial agonists. The other two to mention are brexbiprazole 
and cariprazine. And I'll say a little bit about cariprazine because it's different from aripiprazole in that it targets itself more at the D3 class of dopamine receptor, which is the type of dopamine receptor that's located in the more ventral parts of the dopamine system, which are more concerned with mood and reinforcement and addiction. And it's fairly selective for the D3 receptor and also has a very long half-life reaching steady state after more than three weeks. The next thing to consider uh, with the partial agonists is what are the indications? What are the licensed uses? And in the case of aripiprazole, it has a remarkable range of indications. It's been licensed for all phases of schizophrenia, relapses, first episodes, and maintenance treatment. It's also been used for bipolar disorder and has been uh, explored there. It's got efficacy in mania, although one has to say it's not as anti-manic as drugs like, say, risperidone or haloperidol are. It's definitely not useful in bipolar depression, but it does have value in the prophylaxis of bipolar disorder, especially against the manic phase. And the third indication is to do with unipolar depression, where aripiprazole is useful as an adjunct to antidepressant drugs such as SSRIs. So that's quite a, a wide, wide range of uses. Now, cariprazine is being developed and interestingly has some efficacy in mania and in bipolar depression, different from uh, aripiprazole. I've just got to jump in here to ask, um, obviously, the, uh, one of the things that everyone knows about aripiprazole is that it has a reasonably favorable side effect profile. Do you think this wide range of licensing is partly just because you know, the side effects are so good that it's palatable to use this drug in loads of circumstances? Or do you think it reflects that it has some unique efficacy that's working in many different clinical presentations? Well, the side effect profile is very important in choosing whether you, whether you prescribe it or not in preference to something else. But really, the, the efficacy is, is the curious thing about it, because when you get into the partial agonist, you can't really generalize from one antipsychotic to another or one partial agonist to another. You need to think about which atypical, anti the same with all the atypical antipsychotics, when you get to bipolar disorder, they work in different phases in, in it. And whereas schizophrenia is a fairly simple indication to understand, extending to mood disorders brings about much more differentiation among the antipsychotics and among the partial agonists. Okay, so we've got our three partial agonists, which are variously indicated, and of which I guess uh, one is by far more used than the others. Do you think we should be prescribing more uh, cariprazine than we are? Well, cariprazine is a drug that's just getting licenses in, in this country and still very expensive. And the British are much more conservative than the North Americans, who tend to be rather embracing as far as new developments are concerned. We, I think, are more conservative, and whereas the Americans are guided by side effects, we tend to be more guided by efficacy in our choice of drugs. So um, one way lots of people may have used uh, aripiprazole particularly, as well as, as monotherapy, is in combination with other antipsychotics. And this is something that you've discussed um, in a bit of detail in the special edition as well. 
Well, yes, that's right. And th th this was what stimulated my interest to write these papers. It turned out to be a group of papers, was the experience working in an in psychiatric intensive care ward of seeing patients admitted who seem to have been doing quite well on uh, an antipsychotic such as haloperidol or risperidone, but then because of some side effect, were changed towards having aripiprazole either added onto it or switched to aripiprazole. And I would notice that a proportion of patients being admitted to me with really severe agitation, psychosis and mania had within the previous 10 weeks been prescribed aripiprazole in place of or in addition to their previous medication. And I wanted to try and make sense to this. Um, and I didn't have all that much success just telling my colleagues that I thought it was a bit tricky adding or, or switching to aripiprazole in stable people on antipsychotics. So I, I thought I needed to use a bit of mathematics and see if that would be more persuasive. So I um, started working on what, what would be the mathematics of the receptor theory when applied to a combination of antipsychotics, starting with a simple combination of two full antagonists. But I really wanted to look at the combination of aripiprazole with, with a full antagonist. I turned to a colleague who works in the pharmaceutical industry to assist me in thinking about this. And we had several meetings and talked it over, and he was very helpful in drawing papers to my attention. And we found the equation which you can apply to determine occupancy by individual drugs when two drugs are combined. So in order to, to, to figure out the occupancy of the receptor, usually you would need to know the concentration of the drug and the dissociation constant. But we don't know either of those things when the, the drug is being used clinically. What we know clin clinically is what dose we're giving. We don't know the concentration. And the dissociation constant from the test tube is not of huge use to us because our drugs are penetrating the brain and the blood-brain barrier alters the, the concentration. So we really were a bit stuck with our equations for what to do with the dissociation constant. Then we had the idea that because the dissociation constant represents the concentration that blocks 50% of receptors, we could obtain a similar figure from looking at the PET scans and finding out what dose of the drug blocks 50% of the receptors at the steady state. So the patient's been on a regular dose of it for a week or two. What dose will occupy 50% of the dopamine receptors? And we figured that we could use that in place of the dissociation constant, and that we could then use the dose of the drug in place of the concentration of the drug. So that is the, the basis for the equation which we put up to determine occupancy by the individual antipsychotics used in combination. So first of all, I want to, just to say what uh, the figures are that, that the literature showed us. So when we looked for the, uh, the drugs of interest, on which there's, there's good PET scan data uh, and their mechanism of action is fairly well known, we see that, for example, amisulpiride needs a dose of about 100 to 200 milligrams a day to produce 50% occupancy of D2 receptors. Haloperidol requires just 1.3 milligrams a day. Risperidone, similar 1.2 milligrams a day. So they're the most potent. And then olanzapine, about four milligrams per day. Well, that occupies 50% of receptors. And we know that to occupy 80% of receptors, you need about four times the dissociation 
constant. So you would need four times the dose that occupies 50%. So the dose you might predict would work in a relapse would be four times this dose that blocks 50% of the receptors. So in the case of amisulpiride, you'd predict that you'd need 400 to 800 milligrams a day. For haloperidol, you'd need 5.2 milligrams a day. For risperidone, 4.8 milligrams a day. And olanzapine, 16 milligrams a day. And it turns out that these predicted doses are very close to the optimal doses that have been found in clinical trials in meta-analyses, very similar numbers. Now, aripiprazole is a special case. And for occupying 50% of receptors, aripiprazole needs to be given in a dose of one milligram a day for a couple of weeks to reach steady state. So just one milligram a day of aripiprazole will occupy 50% of dopamine receptors. But you have to remember that it's got an intrinsic activity of 25%. So that's not going to be antagonistic occupancy. And then the next step in the thought process with aripiprazole is, well, what happens with higher doses? Because one milligram a day is not really a, a therapeutic dose. We generally need five or more milligrams a day. Well, if one milligram a day blocks 50% of receptors, it is predicted that five milligrams a day will block 83% of receptors and 30 milligrams a day will block 97% of receptors. Now, that's an important figure because 97% is pretty full occupancy and you won't really get much greater occupancy by raising the dose above 30 milligrams a day. And then if you consider that some of that occupancy is agonistic, then the antagonistic occupancy by aripiprazole is 75% of those figures. So if you have a high dose like 30 milligrams a day of aripiprazole with 97% occupancy, only 73% of that is antagonistic occupancy. So it's when you see that number uh, as the maximum achievable antagonistic occupancy with aripiprazole that you realize that there will be some limitations to the efficacy of aripiprazole in acute relapses. And so 73% occupancy would be enough to treat a first episode of schizophrenia and maybe in the maintenance phase of schizophrenia, but might not be enough to treat an acute relapse. Because we're looking for 80% occupancy. Yeah, because we're thinking theoretically you need 80%. Now, obviously, there's some individual variation and the the number of PET scans that's been done is fairly limited. It's very expensive investigation. So there may be some patients who benefit in an acute relapse with 30 milligrams a day of aripiprazole, but there will definitely be some who cannot be controlled with with, with aripiprazole. And and that really is um, the lesson that comes out uh, uh, about that. So I guess one way that people can address this limitation of the receptor occupancy of uh, aripiprazole and the last clinical topic that you've touched on in this special edition is by combining uh, aripiprazole with a full antagonist. Right. Well, in in the final paper, which is really the, the culmination of this thought experiment, we look at some particular combinations. We discuss the idea of combining antipsychotics and the very limited evidence there is that there's value in it. And we examine some particular examples and we apply the theory to uh, look at the occupancy by aripiprazole or the full antagonist and the degree of agonist and antagonist occupancy that results. 
the examples we choose, there are four examples. The first is the example of combining amisulpiride and aripiprazole. And we chose this example because these are two fairly specific dopamine acting drugs, which seem to be non-sedative, but have different side effects. One raises prolactin, the other lowers prolactin. And um, there are situations where clinicians might want to combine the two, for example, switching from amisulpride to aripiprazole if they thought that, that would have better a better side effect profile. And we look at the flexible way in which you can address the occupancy by having a higher dose of aripiprazole in combination with the amisulpride. It's possible to, to alter the dopamine receptor occupancy, the, the antagonist occupancy, by altering the doses. Now, I just want to say something about the intuitive interaction of the drugs. Intuitively, one can think that if the partial agonist has 25% intrinsic activity and it's combined with a full antagonist that has no intrinsic activity, then the more partial agonists you give, the more agonistic activity you'd get, but the maximum you can get is 25%. So intuitively, that is what, what you need to bear in mind, that you, when you've got the combination, your degree of agonist occupancy at the most is going to be 25%. But if you have some full antagonist there, it will be less than 25%. And we work this out in relation to amisulpride and aripiprazole. We also look at the interaction of aripiprazole and risperidone when it's given to lower prolactin and try to address sexual side effects. And there we have to take account of the fact that risperidone is broken down to paliperidone. They both have poor penetration of the blood-brain barrier, and that at steady state, paliperidone is the, the dominant moiety in the combination. So the equations become a little bit complicated, and um, we lay those out. The third example we use is combining aripiprazole with olanzapine in order to address weight gain that's occurred. So the hope is that you'll help the patient to lose weight. But if you just add aripiprazole to olanzapine, you don't get much overall weight loss. You know, it's not more than about five kilograms, which is a small amount compared to what you've put on with olanzapine. However, if you switch from olanzapine to aripiprazole, you may lose more weight, but it's at the risk of losing control of the psychosis. So we examine the occupancy figures in that situation. And the fourth example we take is of somebody who's been controlled on uh, antipsychotics as an outpatient, but has a relapse while on aripiprazole. So somebody who's on, say, 30 milligrams a day of aripiprazole, but who is relapsing into a schizomanic state, becomes very agitated, paranoid, and hyperactive, and gets admitted, you're then challenged when you try to treat them. And we examine what happens with rapid tranquilization when you give a drug like haloperidol. If, you, if the ECG is normal, uh, the best antipsychotic for rapid tranquilization intramuscularly is probably a haloperidol. Uh, and we examine what, what happens to receptor occupancy as a consequence of there still being aripiprazole in the system. And what we see is that you need to give a much higher dose of haloperidol in order to get the occupancy you need for controlling the severe agitation. Uh, and this takes us into another area, which is very speculative, that maybe for the very agitated patient, you require a higher dose and a higher occupancy than 80%. And clinicians often do use higher doses outside the BNF and doses that occupy more than 
80% of receptors. And we look at the particular case of the drug clopixol, which is used in the form of clopixol acetate or acuphase to avoid giving repeated injections. It's given intramuscularly to control the very highly agitated patient. And very interestingly, the, the, the PET scan data shows that acuphase has an extremely high occupancy of dopamine receptors in the standard therapeutic doses. And we look at the, the meaning of that in terms of, of occupancy in the, in the context of aripiprazole. So there are those four clinical examples, which uh, it's intended that by applying the mathematics, it gives a, a stronger foundation for understanding what the problems are in combining aripiprazole with an antipsychotic, so, with, a full, um, with a full antagonist. So this is um, loads of information that probably a lot of people will not be aware of. What take-home messages can we offer to uh, psychiatrists listening to this, or what modifications should someone make to their practice? The one I'm getting so far is that probably aripiprazole monotherapy is not the best choice for a schizophrenic relapse. Many people may uh, already be incorporating that into their practice. Is there anything else uh, an average psychiatrist should learn from this? Yeah, well, I think the, the two main take-home messages are that if one is thinking of the dopamine hypothesis as, as the explanation for what we're usually getting with, with antipsychotics, it, it's quite useful to, to know that the, the sort of dose that you need to block 50% of receptors is so low, for example, just 1.3 milligrams with haloperidol. And this explains why the BNF maximum for haloperidol is just 15 milligrams. You can get very high occupancy with 15 milligrams of haloperidol, and similarly with, with, with risperidone. The other important message, I think, is that partial agonists are not simply blocking the receptors. They will interact with the receptors in such a way that they compete with other antipsychotic drugs. So you might visualize them as occupying the receptor and preventing another drug such as haloperidol or risperidone being able to block the receptor. So intuitively, you're not going to be able to get the same degree of antagonism of dopamine with a partial agonist as you do with a full antagonist. So some clinical situations don't require very high occupancy, and a drug like aripiprazole gives you enough antagonism to treat the condition. But some psychiatric conditions need a higher occupancy. Aripiprazole will tend to either not be effective in monotherapy or to sort of undermine the the efficacy of a full antagonist. So those John, are the two take-home messages I would suggest. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to record this podcast and for your recent papers in BJ Psych Advances, which are part of a special edition. Uh, that was Dr. John Cookson, consultant from East London with a background in pharmacology. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.